Welcome to the Winter Maintenance Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Dwayne Collett. For our second episode, I thought it would be interesting to take a historical look at winter maintenance and some of the changes that have occurred over the years. To help us with this look back, I spoke with Gordon Bell, a winter maintenance veteran of the Colorado Department of Transportation. Gordon spent nearly 35 years with CDOT. Over his CDOT career, Gordon has done it all from driving snow plows to holding administrative positions. After retiring from CDOT, Gordon continued his career by sharing his winter maintenance knowledge while conducting ARWIS user training. Retired for a second time, Gordon continues his career as a consultant. Now, our look back at winter maintenance with Gordon Bell. Welcome to the Winter Maintenance Podcast, and thank you for helping us with our historical look at winter maintenance. It's definitely my pleasure, Dwayne. I enjoy talking about the past and uh, bringing it up to the future, and I love where the future is going. Well, tell us a little bit, bit about your career with uh, Colorado. Well, I'll tell you, I, I hate to tell you the date I started, but it was back in 1959. And, and I don't hate that because it makes me a little old, but I hate it because uh, that was a long time ago. I did start in 1959 down in southern Colorado uh, with the Department of Transportation as a what we called at that time a, a helper, a maintenance worker out on the road. Uh, we had uh, sections of roadway that were uh, assigned to a certain crew, uh, X number of miles, and they varied depending on where they were, a fewer miles in the mountains, uh, uh, more miles out on the eastern plains. Uh, as you can imagine, the weather is tremendously different between the two. And uh, spent my time uh, learning the trade and uh, learning the equipment to run and uh, what pieces of equipment did what and how to operate and what kind of finished product we were looking for. Uh, worked my way through the maintenance organization from from that helper up to a senior lead worker up to a supervisor, a senior supervisor, on up to uh, in, in, in the administrative end into a superintendent uh, of uh, a maintenance section in the uh, Colorado area. I ended up in the Denver metropolitan area, responsible for uh, over 3,000 miles of uh, urban roadways, if you will, interstate freeways, uh, secondary primary roadways, uh, uh, with ADTs uh, upward of 200,000. So it was an interesting career from southern Colorado to end up in the metropolitan area, where the challenges are a wee bit different, as you can imagine. And how long, let's see, 59, that was, um, how long were you with the DOT then? How many uh, years? Almost 35 years, 34 and a half years I spent with them and uh, retired from DOT in 1993. Had a wonderful career, enjoyed every bit of it. Got to be a little bit political, you might say, uh, as you get up into the administrative end, which is totally different. And, of course, you're looking at uh, personnel and uh, purchasing equipment and, and chemicals and materials. Uh, which is totally different than actually putting the rubber to the road, so to speak. Okay. So 40 years ago, how did you uh, deal with winter maintenance? Well, just a wee bit different than we uh, deal with it today, but uh, 
our work week when I started was five and a half days. Uh, we worked a half a day on Saturday. There was no overtime. And you got a flat salary per month, paid once a month. <laughs> I think back to those days at $317 uh, gross. That wasn't net. That was gross, $317 a month uh, as compared with salaries today. Uh, but then I look back at the prices and a quarter milk is a quarter and a gallon of gas was 15 cents. So uh, uh, I guess you put everything in perspective. It, it's totally different. Uh, winter maintenance, summer maintenance. You had small crews. The traffic was tremendously less. We didn't have many cars. Uh, our traffic control was one sign that said men working, and you watched for traffic uh, and, and patched out in the middle of the highway at the same time. Totally different now than the MUTCD, which calls for traffic control, signing, lane closures, uh, arrow boards, etc. And it holds true through the uh, winter months. We went out to plow. I had a, a maintenance engineer in our district when I first started who was a believer in making sure the public knew we were working, and he wanted them uh, to see us out on the road doing our job. It didn't cost any more to work 12 hours, 14 hours a day than it did to work 8 hours a day. So he wanted those orange trucks to be visible. We uh, would go out as soon as it started uh, the snow and, and come back when the roads were dry and uh, park the trucks. In fact, he had a famous saying uh, when it began to snow. He said, I don't care if the first flake of snow hits the ground. That's okay. But the second flake of snow better hit the back of your loaded truck out on your road, which meant we were out uh, at a considerable length of time. Um, it, it's totally different than it is today. We had a lot of two-lane roads rather than four-lane interstates. Our policy in, in Colorado was dry road policy, which meant uh, we went out as soon as it began to snow, and as I mentioned, uh, we came back in when the roads were dry again. You can imagine that was quite lengthy. Uh, the public did not expect uh, nearly as much out of us then as they do today, but then they didn't travel as much. When I first uh, began, the only materials we put on the road were cinders, cinders and sand. And the only thing we uh, sanded were any hills that were difficult to get up, any curves on the, on the roadway, or any bridges. So you can imagine that uh, you drove on snowpack or slush or whatever uh, through the remainder of the road. I don't know how many of you will remember, but there used to be what we called cinder bins alongside the road. Uh, these were barrels that were filled with cinders, uh, usually cinders because they didn't freeze quite as hard as sand did. But we put a little salt in them, and then we filled these barrels as they were needed. And if you happened to get stuck on a little hill, you had a shovel in the back of your car like everyone carried. You just walked over, you grabbed a little cinders or sand, you scattered it underneath your wheels, and you went on your way. You can imagine today that uh, what would happen, uh, totally different. But everyone at those days carried a set of tire chains in their car, at least those that were close to the mountains or in snowy areas. They had a set of chains. Uh, they had a canvas, usually, or some type of uh, plastic to put down on the roadway so you could lay down and put the chains on and uh, a pair of coveralls and gloves and a shovel in the back of their car. Uh, that's what my dad always traveled with. It was not unusual for us to head up to the mountains and get so far. and The roads were bad, and we'd get out, put the chains on the car, and drive on up to where we wanted to go. Today, you don't find very many such chains in cars, if any. The expectations are totally different. People really do want a 60-mile-an-hour or a 70-mile-an-hour roadway in 10 inches of snow and, and blizzard conditions, 
they want to be able to drive uh, 70 miles an hour. So the expectations are different, and, and of course, the volume of traffic on the road today is tremendously different than it was in those days. So there have been a lot of changes. Expectations have changed. Uh, demands on the Department of Transportation have changed. Uh, costs have gone up, as has everything else. Very good. What about the equipment that you were using? Well, uh, you can imagine the equipment's made as much change as the uh, expectations of the public. The first truck I was uh, privileged to drive with a snowplow on it was a 1946 GMC, uh, what we called a two-ton truck. It had a uh, 200 cubic inch six-cylinder GMC or Chevy engine in it with a four-speed transmission manual and a manual two-speed rear differential that you had to shift. Uh, you stop and shift into uh, higher or low range in the differential in the rear end. Uh, no hydraulics except a small hand pump, hand hydraulic jack that was mounted up on the front of the plow with a handle in the cab that you would turn the little valve down and pump the handle and it would raise the plow up off the ground. And then you would release the little valve in the cab and it would let the uh, plow back down on the ground. It was only an eight-foot plow. And there was no method of turning uh, those plows in those days. You went outside and took a bar and pulled a pin out of the center, and then you found a curbing or a bank of snow or <clears throat> a wedge somewhere that you could push the plow up against to swing it to the other side and get out, drive the pin in with a sledgehammer, and go on your way. We didn't have any sophisticated sanders in those days. We had uh, some roller sanders on the back of the trucks. And we also had some of the uh, little pull-behinds that you hooked onto a little hitch. There was a small gate in the center of the tailgate that you would raise up and uh, raise the box a little bit, and the sand would uh, slide down into the spinner sander, and the spinner would run all the time you were on the road. Um, so it was a little bit different. Uh, I can recall uh, when I worked uh, uh, south of Pueblo and up into the mountains uh, west, we had uh, up at that station we had a 1934 Coleman narrow gauge, we called it, because the wheels were single, front and rear. It set very high off the ground, and the wheel width was much narrower than a standard truck. So we called it the old narrow gauge. It had a 10-foot plow that would raise about a foot, foot and a half off the ground. So we used it quite often when we got into heavy snow. to Take the first uh, layer off the top, then back up, drop the plow all the way down on the ground, and take the second layer off. Uh, worked quite well. It had a wooden... Uh, believe this or not, it had a wooden, square wooden cab with sliding wooden doors on each side. Uh, the emergency brake, uh, as you see in the old, old movies, had a long handle you pulled back with a lever and released it uh, to lock the drive shaft. You could uh, look down through the floorboards where the brake was and see the pavement underneath you. Not too warm, not too comfortable, uh, had almost a flat steering wheel. But I'll tell you, when we converted the old Waukesha split-head engine and put our Cummings diesel and 160s in there it made a pretty rugged old truck but those are the kinds of things we had snow goes uh snow blowers uh, that uh, were were really uh very a adequate uh snow go with uh, diesel engines on the rear and again an old split head walk the show engine all mounted on an fwd truck uh 1948 model and so those are the first pieces of equipment now those aren't the only pieces of equipment we had of course but we had FWDs, we had Coleman's, uh, uh, four-wheel drives at that time, uh, 
and used strictly for uh, snow removal. And most of those big pieces of equipment were strictly used in the wintertime. Uh, nowadays, you, you look at the equipment that VOTs are purchasing, they're multi-purpose pieces of equipment, uh, tandem axles, uh, heated mirrors, uh, air ride seats, uh, excellent AM, FM radios for communications, uh, good communication possibilities, liquid and, and granule spreader application types, uh, all metered, measured for application rates. So tremendously different. We had several A plows. We had an old Walters truck that was an all-wheel drive with a, a 12-foot wide uh, or a t- an 8-foot wide uh, A plow on the front and a 10-foot wing on each side. Tremendous piece of equipment, but uh, it was a, it was one of the specialty pieces of equipment that was very expensive to operate and uh, only had one purpose. So things have changed considerably in the way uh, equipment uh, is out today, uh, and uh, I might add, much for the better. It was a long, cold night when you spent it out in the 1946 Chevy. Yeah, or in the open wood, or in the wooden cab that you can see through the floorboard, right? Uh, absolutely, you could see through the floorboards uh, and watch the pavement go underneath. And, and you might you might imagine how how warm it was inside. Heaters weren't very effective in those days. Well, that was a good way to get a visual inspection of the type of work you were doing with the plow, right? <laughs> it absolutely was. It absolutely was. Uh, I'd look back now and laugh, but uh, there were some long, cold days and nights. What about in the mountains? Did you do any work up in the mountains with some snow, with uh, with windy roads and things like that? We did west of uh, west of Pueblo, uh, up into the San Isabel uh, Mountain, San Isabel National Forest. Uh, we had roads that went up through there. A great deal of difference in some areas in the mountains, uh, and I and I don't want to. Uh, make this sound like everywhere, but somewhere in the places in the mountains, you don't get tremendous winds. This year in, in, in Colorado, at least, we've had tremendous snow in the mountains and uh, some very good winds with it, uh, which make it miserable. But it can fall uh, at the rate of two to three inches an hour or more in the mountain ranges. So, uh, you know, it's something that you, you need to be on all the time. The rural mountain roads are, are different than the major arteries. Uh, the skiing is a huge industry west of Denver, and so you might imagine that the uh, pressure on Department of Transportations in those types of places are, are tremendous because of the demand to get uh, to and from and, and the uh, commerce. But I have been in, in the mountains plowing uh, snow. When you plow snow and look in the mirror and it's getting white behind you as fast as you bear the pavement, you don't have a lot of traffic, so you can bear the pavement down to look black, but by the time you get uh, 100, 200 feet down the road, uh, it's white behind you again. So uh, it, it's different plowing in the mountains. Uh, you can imagine the amounts of snow, um, 150 to 180% of normal in the Colorado mountain ranges right now. So it, you stack the snow up pretty deep. Uh, the tall poles for markers on the sides of the road uh, 15, 20 feet high, become uh, only half visible or less. A lot of snow blowers uh, used to uh, cut back the drifts, blow the snow across the road. It It's a little bit different operation than it is uh, in the uh, flatlands of eastern Colorado. The equipment, there's a lot more heavy equipment in the mountains than there is out east, but uh, we get the tremendous winds on the eastern plains, uh, like Wyoming does, where you would you get two inches of snow and the roads are closed for two days because you have 60, 70 mile an hour winds. 
So it's totally different between the mountains and the plains, but a challenge for both ends. Urban areas versus rural areas, totally different challenges. Did you ever uh, live up in a, a camp and just... Because I think, didn't you have camps up in the mountains or mm. shelters or housing or something for people so they could be right there so when the snow was flying that they could get out and take care of it? Yes. In fact, there are still a few of them. I think of uh, over near the Durango area up on Wolf Creek Pass, and there is still a, uh, a state housing camp up at, uh, on Wolf Creek Pass where the, the workers uh, live right through the winter, much like out uh, in California where they have the uh, camps up on the passes uh, between, uh, oh, I'm going to blank here, between uh, Reno and uh, California. They have a huge uh, camp up there on the passes. Uh, it's it's not as common as it used to be here. There used to be a lot of uh, uh, rural uh, uh, camps where CDOT employees would live year-round, and those now, a lot of them have gone because of the, communities around them have built up and, and they live in the towns now but those are rural areas uh, where they are on the road 24 hours a day they have enough personnel and shift to maintain 24 hours around the clock and and uh, it gets to be quite a chore through the winter months yeah i could imagine that would be uh maybe feel a little bit isolated up there for the whole winter definitely definitely it gets lonely you you said you worked you you caught the second snowflake and stayed out till the roads were dry. Um, so you were working basically around the clock, or where did you stay? Did you go home, or how did that work? Well, our trucks were on the road around the clock, and we would work twelve, fourteen hours. There were usually two people, no more than three, to a section of roadway that might be thirty, forty miles long. Uh, we had two trucks on our interstates, uh, and uh, usually one truck on the primary roads. We would have enough personnel to run uh, one truck for 12 hours and through the night, and then we would put two trucks on for the additional 12 hours in the daytime to try to catch up and widen out and catch up with sanding. And uh, that would go on as long as the storm went on. We uh, incorporated our uh, painting crews that did the striping on the highways and put up the signs. When the storms got bad, we would uh, put them into the cycle and uh, have them fill in for the areas that were uh, short of manpower. And it made for some long weeks and long days, but it seemed like everything worked out pretty well. And uh, we even used our engineering staff for road closures to man road closures in our roadblocks so that the maintenance personnel could continue to work and the engineering personnel would uh, maintain those roadblocks for us. Okay. What chemicals did you use, and, and when did you start using them, and how did you use them? Well, when I started with the department in 1959, we uh, used primarily sand and salt and cinders and salt. Uh, cinders, from the operations of a lot of the power companies around the local areas, uh, we would, through the summer months, collect the cinders that had been stockpiled that they would get rid of, and we collected those and brought them to our maintenance facilities and mixed a little bit of salt in to keep them from freezing solid, and we would use those through the winter months. But as the years progressed, uh, the PM10 and the dust from the cinders on the roadway uh, got to be uh, more than, uh, than people would tolerate, and so we had to quit using our cinders, and we had uh, went to sand. We used a pea gravel sand 
Uh, we had a couple of pits in the local areas where we had good clean sand that we could bring in and screen and add a little bit of salt to. Then we uh, we used bag salt. We used to get bag salt by the semi-load. Through the summer months, uh, we would stockpile all that salt in what we called salt sheds or salt barns. Uh, we would stack it to the ceiling. And then when we mixed our sand, we would use a conveyor and a screen and uh, add uh, about 10 bags to uh, 10 yards. So we mixed about a bag a yard, which was very, very light. And, and again, the reason we put it in was just to keep the piles from freezing solid on us. Um, as time went on, we began to add more salt. But you can imagine we didn't salt sand a great deal when I first began. I worked on a section of road south of Pueblo, 35 miles, four lane with service roads on both sides. And one load of sand would take me 35 miles because all I sanded was the bridges and the hills. But I will say in the second breath that before I left that area and moved on uh, over a period of five or six years, we began to sand almost all of that entire roadway. And so one sand, one load of sand wouldn't get me to the other end and back, so we'd have to reload and head back. Salt and sand uh, was our mainstay in those days. We used very little uh, salt unless we had major snowpack on the roadway. We had what we called a salt truck with a little Briggs and Stratton motor encased in a, a housing in the back. It was a salt blower, and it turned a fan, and uh, we would break open a, a bag of salt and dump it into the hopper of that machine, and the fan would uh, spin up and blow the salt out the fins through the back and to the sides. Uh, we would load that truck with salt and head down the road, get maybe... 10, 15 miles with a couple hundred bags of salt that were in the truck, and then we'd go back and get more and come back and salt again. And that was only done when we had uh, heavy snowpack to try to break it when the weather warmed a little bit get it off the road. We didn't use any liquid chemical in those days. There was a little bit of calcium chloride that uh, we tried in the 60s and 70s, but the corrosion with the equipment was so bad it was, uh, it was very difficult uh, if you didn't get the uh, equipment very, very clean. But as time progressed, the liquids, as you know, became more and more popular, and uh, we experimented with uh, mag uh, liquid uh, calcium chloride. Uh, then the magnesium chlorides came along, and we experimented with magnesium chlorides, pre-wetting uh, with the magnesium chloride and the calcium chloride, used calcium flakes, began to uh, apply a little more liquids as time came on. And, of course, nowadays liquid, uh, liquid applications are, are tremendous. They, they're a great help friendly to the environment, uh, do a good job, and, and when applied properly, uh, can really uh, aid in the safety of the roadway. So chemicals have changed tremendously, as you well know, from then to now, uh, when we used very little materials uh, and everybody was responsible to drive the speed on the road. Now they want the speed limit, not, not the speed according to the conditions. So it has changed, and uh, and the way you apply it, uh, semis uh, with the 5,000-gallon tankers uh, heading down the road spraying chemical as opposed to uh, we had little 300-gallon tanks on the back running down through a PVC bar uh, dropping little strings of uh, calcium chloride on the road. So things have changed tremendously in the terms of chemical use. It's always kind of fun to reminisce, though, isn't it? Yeah. It 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 takes you back, and uh, 
it compares traffic in those days and methods in those days with traffic today and methods today. What did you do about weather forecasting or weather information? Well, we had the newspaper. We got the newspaper at night, which said tomorrow might be windy, cold, snowy. Temperatures is anywhere from zero to 40. Uh, weather forecasting was fairly sparse at that time. Um, you see the hear the news. Uh, every once in a while, you'd get a uh, National Weather Service bulletin on the news. We looked at the newspaper. Our boss had a... Uh, a route that he came to work, and uh, they had put up a new sign on the uh, First National Bank in Pueblo. And on that sign, they had a thermometer. And so when he came to work, if the thermometer was anywhere below 30 degrees or 35 degrees, uh, and the clouds were uh, in the sky, and the forecast was possibly for 20% chance of snow showers, we went out to work with the trucks on the road and had our sand in. And he just wanted to make sure... Uh, you know what they say, CYA, and so he wanted to make sure he was covered and the public knew that the Department of Transportation was out on the road ready to go. And that's a far cry from today. Uh, you could not afford to keep someone on the road today with with uh, overtime and public scrutiny of Departments of Transportation now. Have someone out there wasting their time for 10, 12 hours of driving up and down the road waiting for snow. Uh, we used to get calls all the time about why are your people out there on the road, there's no snow, and you're wasting my taxpayer's dollar. And then in the next incident, when it was snowing very well and, and we had a lot of heavy snow, they're calling, where are the trucks? Why are they not out on the road? You're wasting my taxpayer's dollar. So it's one of those battles that the uh, Department of Transportation and public entities fight all of the time. But you need to be uh, pretty judicial with your uh, time now, and along with that, you need you need some good forecasting. Uh, we just didn't have it. I I didn't have a... I wasn't accustomed to having any custom forecasting until I came into the metropolitan area in Denver where we hired a uh, meteorologist that did work for the newspapers and the television stations uh, and radio stations prompting uh, forecasts. And uh, it became important to us to know not only that it was going to snow, but when it was going to snow and where it was going to snow and, and what the potential for heavier light snow and wind was. Oh, as those became more important, because we were uh, under the gun to be on the road in a timely manner and apply chemical and materials when needed, uh, it became important for us then to, to learn what we needed to know uh, from the experts as to where the weather is going to hit. I even recall at a time we had two different meteorological companies uh, on board simply because we wanted to find out uh, if there was a better way to uh, uh, skin the cat. Uh, we wanted to be able to do that. And so we used a couple of different companies for a couple of years and, and um, ultimately had to settle on one of them to provide us with the weather. But it was, uh, was cost-effective to hire a meteorologist, have him on staff. The time that you saved uh, or the money that you saved in time out on the road uh, overtime paid, equipment use, equipment uh, uh, wear and tear, material use uh, was well worth it. So uh, weather became a big part of uh, our operation uh, as to timing for the storm, duration of the storm, etc. And as you can imagine now, there are several availabilities for weather forecasting. 
uh, now casting, equipment in the field to provide you current information, etc. Weather forecasting is as big a part of uh, the operation now as uh, the right chemical and uh, having enough chemical on hand. Uh, do you remember what year that was that you started using private forecasters? Uh, we started using them in, let me think, about 1978, 79, 80, right in there with the private forecaster. And, uh, of course, they were only on staff for about approximately four or five months of the year. As as we found the value in it, we increased that time to about eight months through the year for the uh, early snowstorms and the uh, uh, in the winter and in the uh, flooding potential and uh, hail in our uh, spring storms. So that began uh, somewhere around there. And by the 80s, um, 84, 85, we uh, had permanent people or we had people um, sometimes year-round. Okay. What was your experience with RWIS or Road Weather Information Systems? When did you start using those systems? I first looked at uh, RWIS in about 1984. Four, we looked at it for approximately two years before we installed first. We looked at more than one vendor, but at that time there were only two vendors available. One was a foreign vendor, one was a local vendor. We worked with FHWA then to put in a couple of sites as a um, experimental funded site from FHWA and installed one on a new structure on the south end of Denver and one on an existing structure where we'd had uh, many multi-car accidents on a two-mile elevated portion of Interstate 70. Um, we didn't know how well they worked. We felt that the technology probably had some good promise, uh, didn't know what results we would get, so we wanted to test them for a couple of years. So back then was, uh, was new. Uh, it was fascinating to be able to get information uh, real-time from from uh, sensors placed in the roadway, you didn't know whether uh, uh, what they were telling you when uh, when it said snow and ice alert, or it said uh, chemical wet, uh, or it said ice. So it was a learning curve that uh, required some time to gain some both knowledge and confidence in the equipment. It did prove out to be very helpful, and not only in in the maintenance and the uh, work on the roadways and snow removal and, and sanding procedures. It also increased the safety on the road. We were out there at a better time. We knew when we had chemical on the roadway. It's difficult to say exactly how much, but we knew that there was chemical on the roadway. It provided uh, some information for us uh, to look at our storms uh, in terms of history, uh, what happened at the beginning of the storm, what were the pavements in the air, what was the surface temperature. Uh, so we gained a lot of information on what we did to fight each individual storm. It also proved helpful for us, at least, with our legal people in terms of having a record of what conditions were like in terms of air temperature, precip or no precip, surface conditions, the time someone uh, may have had an accident. So that was my first experience with it, those two sites. And from those two sites then, uh, by 1989, uh, we had several sites around the metropolitan area. Uh, communicating back to a, a central site. And, and we used the equipment and the information from that equipment along with our forecasting to, uh, to help us in our, in our timing of uh, when we had people out on the roadway. As you might guess, it's very expensive 
to put several pieces of equipment and manpower and, and chemical out on the roadway at one time, particularly if there's nothing out there for them to do. So it became a, it became part of our uh, standard part of our operation from uh, the mid '80s on to today, at least on until I retired in '93, and I, the systems are still there today. I'm assuming they're still doing the same thing. What about fixed automated spray systems or fast systems? Did you have any experience with those while you were with CDOT? Not while I was with CDOT, Dwayne. Um, we did not have any of those types of things. Uh, they were becoming uh, test systems when I first when I when I left the department. I did not see any in operation until after I was out of the department and uh, uh, working in other facets uh, of my career. But since that time, I have helped install and. Uh, have uh, watched the operations of several of those different types of systems, and uh, they've become quite a sophisticated system. Excellent for many operations, I think, and there is a place for them all over. I can't get that truck with the wooden cab out of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Going back to that and radio communications, did you have radio communications at that time, or were you just out there on your own, or...? Most of the units did not have radio communications. We tried to have one radio, at least one radio, in one of the trucks on each patrol uh, or each segment of highway that we were on. But the communications relied on the towers, uh, and the towers for communications in Colorado, at least early on, were primarily put in for the Colorado State Patrol uh, for communications with uh, law enforcement. We kind of piggybacked on their system and uh, used some of their towers. We used their dispatchers, and so if their dispatchers were busy, we usually had to wait a little while before we got communications. It wasn't a big thing, but it did make a difference. There were several places along the section of roadway I first started on that you couldn't contact uh, anybody anyway because of the mountainous or the hilly terrain. Uh, We had communications problems in the mountains uh, because of the mountainous terrain, Eastern Plains worked fairly well, but you you still had a transmission problem uh, in, in the types of radios you had and how much power. So, and again, as uh, as things progressed and technology became more and more uh, available, different types of technology, we uh, began to install radios in every piece of equipment we had, particularly all of our road equipment, our snow removal equipment, that type of thing uh, had priority. Communications are much better now than they were. There are different types of communications, trunking systems, etc., that uh, are much more reliable, repeaters. So you maybe could get the dispatcher on the radio, and if you couldn't, you drive another 5 or 10 miles and see if you could get the dispatcher again. So we stopped a lot of times at uh, 24-hour truck stops and would call in uh, to check on things or provide information. And along that route, uh, we also had our our own... Uh, system of communications, uh, you might ask how we knew when it was snowing out on a segment of road to 30 miles out of town or 40 miles, and I, I will give you an example of what I used. It was the good old boy system. We had a farmer who had uh, cows that he milked south of town. He was about 25 miles out on my section of roadway. We had a truck stop that uh, I knew the owners and operators of the truck stop got uh, acquainted with them. Uh, and when it would snow and those people wouldn't see any evidence of a, a plow out, they would give me a call. I had given them my phone number. 
they would call me and say, uh, Gordon, guess what? It's snowing out here, and I don't see any tracks. Have you been here yet? And so I would send a truck out. I would go out. Uh, the truck stop would call me and say, I just got a report from a trucker that stopped in, and it was snowing on the south end. Um, and then the state patrol would call if they had a car out. So the good old boy system was in hand. But I, I will tell you in the same breath that my farmer finally was old enough. He passed away. I lost that communication. The truck stop that was out on the road closed down. I lost that communication. And so uh, we had to learn to rely on something else, i.e., that's where some of the risks came into hand at those remote sites. We didn't have to have someone wake up in the middle of the night. The information was available, and all we had to do was set up an alarm so that uh, it would warn us when precip <coughs> began to fall. Great deal of difference uh, in the way things are handled now. Yeah, and I would imagine today that every truck has a cell phone in it now. Every truck has a what? A cell phone. Uh, pretty much, pretty much. All the supervisors do, many of the trucks do. Uh, the communication so much better with repeater stations. Uh, uh, there are still some dead spots in the mountains, but uh, they're uh, a lot fewer than they ever were before. And the communication, even from truck to truck, is much better. Can you relate to us a memorable experience you had over your career with uh, performing winter maintenance? Well, there are memorable. I remember uh, one time during a blizzard in, in southeastern Colorado, uh, many of us from other sections of the state were called down that way to aid in the opening of roads down there. And we had uh, gone down through Trinidad and east uh, towards La Lamar. Heavy snow drifts at every one of the cuts. Uh, we worked our way uh, down. I think it was the third day out that we were pretty well exhausted. We'd sleep in the trucks for a little while. Uh, we had passed a little town uh, the day before and cleaned out the store of what they had in a couple quarts of milk and uh, a, a box of Twinkies. I think that's all we'd had for the last about 20 hours. And as dawn was coming up uh, one morning, the wind had subsided and we heard a, a pop, 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 pop across the field, and as, as the sun came up a little bit, we saw this uh, tractor, this John Deere tractor popping across the field, pulling what uh, looked like a hay trailer, and we wondered why he was, the heck, he was out in that kind of weather. He was just winding around the field where there was no snow. It was all blown off and blown into the ravines and the cuts. I think most of it was on the highway, but a few minutes later, as he got closer, we could see someone was sitting on the back of the, the, the hay trailer. And when he got to the right-of-way fence, uh, barbed wire fence, he, he stopped. It was his wife on the back of the trailer. He got out, and they had two boxes, one full of bacon egg sandwiches and the other one full of thermoses of hot coffee. Never so happy to see a farmer in my entire life. Cold, windy, hungry. Uh, we made short work of the sandwiches and coffee, I'll tell you. They went down like uh, we hadn't eaten in a month. But it was it was a wonderful experience to know that the people out there knew you were trying to get something open for them to uh, head back and forth into their rural towns uh, and uh, were willing to come out in that kind of weather to, to give you a little bit of uh, food. It, it was amazing. Those are the kinds of things that you remember forever. I remember east of Colorado Springs, between Colorado Springs and Lyman. Many times the wind blowing 80 miles an hour and uh, 
you ha- you have 30 miles to drive, it takes you four hours to get there. You just have to stop. You can't see for hours at a time or, or half hour at a time, uh, total whiteouts. So many instances like that that just uh, that just stick in your mind that now are, are really great memories for me to know that, uh, that we were there, but uh, trying times. And I'm sure everybody that's worked on the highways uh, has, has many of those types of uh, memorable, memorable incidences, if you will. Yes, and I would imagine that there's a lot of memories still being made today. Uh, there certainly are. Every time that you have a major snowstorm anywhere, Department of Transportation, public uh, people are out, and, and they put their lines on their lives on the line uh, to help the public and to move uh, the public and commerce from one point to another. And I'm sure every single snowstorm that happens across this country, someone has that type of a story to tell. Well, I think we're getting a little long here now, so uh, I think want to, again, thank you for taking us down memory lane. I think people will enjoy hearing a little bit about the past, and I'm sure there are a number of people out there that could tell their own stories about the past and the equipment they used, and probably was different in different areas of the country. I'm sure, Dwayne, and you know, everybody that works uh, for public agencies, as I said before, puts their life on the line daily uh, in heavy traffic. I'm sure each and every one of them has a story. And the stories today will be much like the stories of yesterday. Uh, The experiences will be much the same. The conditions might be a little bit different. The technology might be a little bit different. But when you're out on the road and you're in a storm, it's you against the elements, and that will never change. Well, we hope that maybe there'll be some uh, public taxpaying citizens that listen in on this podcast, and uh, we'll get a little bit more appreciation about what what people do out there to make the roads safe during a storm, and uh, maybe wave at the guys in the trucks when they go by. If they just give them a little thought, a little consideration, I think everybody would appreciate it. And I'd like to uh, wish everyone the best out there. Uh, Thanks for letting me uh, reminisce a little bit here and rattle on. Uh, We could go on for hours with uh, experiences and times, and and, uh, I'd be more more than happy to come back time uh, once in a while uh, to spend a little more time and, and talk about some of the things the way they were. Thanks for sharing your experiences and your offer to speak with us again. Take care. Thanks, Wayne. I hope you enjoyed our historical look at winter maintenance, and thanks for listening. Please send us your comments and suggestions. You can email me using the contact me link or post a comment on the Episode 2 podcast page, both that can be found at the wintermaintenance.com website. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Thanks to Thought Pyramid for the music that is available at www.archive.org. So long for now.